This is the Norris Group's Real Estate Investor Radio Show, the award-winning show dedicated to thought leaders shaping the real estate industry and local experts revealing their insider tips to succeed in an ever-changing real estate market. Hosted by author, investor, and hard money lender, Bruce Norris. Hi, thank you for joining us. My name is Bruce Norris, and today we have a very special guest, Doug Duncan. Doug is the Senior Vice President and Chief Economist at Fannie Mae, where he's responsible for forecast and analysis of the economy and the housing mortgage markets. Doug also oversees strategic research regarding the potential impact of external factors on the housing industry. Well, there's been none of those, so that's not been a problem. He leads the House, <laughs> <laughs> he leads the house Price Forecast Working Group reporting to the Financial Committee. Under his leadership, Fannie Mae's Economic and Strategic Research Group won the NABE Outlook Award, presented annually for the most accurate GDP and Treasury note yield forecast in 2015 and 2016, the first recipient in the award's history to capture the honor two years in a row. In addition, ESR was awarded by Pulsonomics okay, for Best Home Price Forecast. Um, the list goes on and on. One of the most 50 powerful people in real estate. That's a fact. Doug, welcome back to our show. Hey, glad to join you. Always good to spend time with you. You know what's, you know, I guess one thing I'm going to ask up front because it's been an interesting discussion for California uh, people that have renter, uh, renters in place. There's all kinds of talks about moratorium of rent paying. And so I wanted to first ask, What's been the impact of the coronavirus on delinquencies in Fannie Mae's, you know, pool? Uh, and I'm just curious how that compares to, say, 2009 or 10 when it was really at its worst. Are you talking about in the rental space or in no, the, no, in no, the owner? in the owner occupant? You know, in the owner occupant world, uh, just the delinquencies in general. Well, at this point, it really hasn't been uh, much because the, uh, of the presence of the forbearance uh, program. And the, the entrance into the forbearance program is actually fairly straightforward. Um, roughly, all you have to do is, is contact your servicer and say that I have, am suffering a financial hardship uh, driven by the virus and you can be accepted into a forbearance program. The, the question, and it can take, it can be up to a 12 month, it's renewable up to a 12 month time frame. So we probably won't know until any individual loan passes that 12 month time period, whether or not it will ultimately go uh, into delinquency and foreclosure. So, um, and there are a set of rules on how that's reported on credit reports and, and things like that. So um, it's, it's TBD, frankly. What's interesting is there was initial run-up in forbearance uh, requests, and then things leveled off. And there were actually some households that uh, brought their loan current and got rid of the forbearance our assessment on that was that there were some households that simply acted because it was simple. They acted on it as a, a sort of an insurance in the event that they suffered job loss or some serious income truncation. And when that didn't happen, they reversed out of it because of course it does ultimately 
need to be uh, brought current, whether it's through uh, some sort of a, of a modification or uh, simply they, the, pay, uh, the borrower pays back the amount they would have paid over that time period. So there's, there are rules uh, uh, around all of that, but at this point, um, it, that's not driving uh, delinquencies. Because <clears throat> they're not being they're not being counted the same way. What percentage of the loans that you have are in forbearance? Then maybe that was a better question. Um, you know, on the off the top of my head, I'm not sure within the full market okay. what that what that number is, but I, I'd be happy to get that back to you. Now that, um, cool. It's not, it, it's lower than what, uh, I think some of the initial estimates uh, were uh, wildly high, uh, 15, 20%. It depended on the source that you looked at, um, but uh, it's not nearly that. I think uh, at this point, yeah, it's like actually the MBA, I think the MBA puts out some, some uh, numbers for the full market as opposed to just the GSCs, last but it's less than what was anticipated. Yeah. I think it was eight or nine last time I saw it, but anyway, okay. Um, here's an interesting question in 2020. Have we met the technical definition of being in a recession? We have, uh, the national Bureau of economic research, which is the governing body, which determines the start and end of recessions pronounced that February was the starting month of a recession. Okay. So they have not, obviously they have not pronounced a, an end to it yet, but we are technically in a recession. Okay. What are the key numbers that let you know you're in a depression? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, okay. The, the humorous thing uh, that people used to say was uh, if uh, your neighbor loses their job, it's a recession. <laughs> if you lose your job, it's a depression. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so the, but a more serious answer is if you were looking simply at unemployment, there there have been 42 or 43 million claims filed for unemployment insurance, which is uh, the far and away the greatest number ever. Of course, the population is much larger than the early 1900s, so you'd have to adjust as a share of the population. But the the initial uh, impulse of job loss was very much like the Great Depression. The, what, what's interesting is the rebound has been uh, fairly quick, but we're still at, under official statistics, at um, 11%, a little over 11% unemployment. Um, which is which is a very serious level. It's not at the deepest level that the, the Great Depression in the 1930s was, but the initial impulse of it was there. The, the 42 or 43 file, million filings for unemployment insurance is more than all that occurred during the Great Recession recently. And just to give you a little sense of magnitude, Prior to this, to the virus issue, the uh, largest weekly issuance of claims was something short of 700,000. And in one week in March, there were 6.9 million that were filed, just to give you a a sense of the magnitude, a factor of, you know, almost 10 uh, greater than the previous all-time record, which is just incredible. Now, some of those unemployment insurance claims 
that you can't equate that to 42 or 43 million jobs lost because the states in many instances were not prepared to process all those claims. They had never seen anything like that in terms of magnitude. So there's good evidence that some people filed multiple claims because they couldn't get through the system. There were some people that filed claims inappropriately and had to refile. There were uh, people who were not eligible under the rules that filed. Um, so there, there's a number of reasons that that number doesn't equate one to one to a job loss, but just the magnitude of it gives you a sense of the employment shock that uh, that hit the economy. Is what separ- uh, kind of separating this experience from any other economic downturn, the speed in, in which it was delivered? Unquestionably. Okay. It's, uh, there's, there's never, even in the Great Depression, there was a gradual decline uh, to very high levels of unemployment. But this was a sudden uh, shock. It, there is, in fact, that all the charts that you can, that you can use to chart the actual data look incredibly strange because the, the, both the magnitude and the suddenness of it, there are no previous examples of. Uh, for example, one of the ones I use to give a sense of it is that data I was just describing on the unemployment insurance claims. If you take the whole history of it, in order to get the scale to include the, the shock now, all pri- previous weeks look just like a straight line horizontally, and then you see this straight vertical line. Uh-huh. <laughs> and those are the actual data. <laughs> it's just shocking. Yeah, I, I think I put that in a text to somebody, and I said, that's the scariest chart I've ever seen. It, yeah, it's kind of funny when you're talking about charts and say you're in uncharted territory. That's no joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's charted in a way people wouldn't believe. No, you know, it's just it's amazing. So we've had coronavirus round number one, and we've got some really aggressive government response, aggressive Fed response. What, in your opinion, did they get right, and anything they did uh, that you're concerned about? Well, um, the the suddenness of the of the job loss uh, and the magnitude of the job loss did require some response um, because it would, in the absence of some support for uh, that huge number of job loss, it would hit consumption dramatically uh, and you could start a downward spiral. So the, I think the, the PPP, which was intended to keep people employed uh, aligned with the small business associations effort, or administration's efforts to provide credit lines to keep small businesses alive and at and the supplemental um, uh, unemployment insurance to uh, give some support to consumption were were really uh, important. Um, now you can argue over the degree or the dollar figures, those kind of things, because there's pretty good evidence that the 600 a week and supplemental uh, unemployment. Uh, insurance payments 
actually increased the income over what people, some people had been making previously and has discouraged them from going back to work. That's, that is not a, a positive thing that there's all kinds of evidence that, um, that in public assistance, the best position for public assistance is at a level that does not discourage the working poor because there is dignity in work and, and the health of households is greater in, in that environment than in being uh, completely on public assistance. So to the extent that it crossed the line in that place, that's probably, if there is another round of place, there'll be some recalibration. The, the, uh, there'll be a bunch of noise about uh, whether all the companies that got access to uh, to funding deserved access to that. This is one of the one of the things that happens when you have a blanket national policy. There's all kinds of regional differences in things, and and there will always be stories of uh, about uh, about those regional differences and and inequities and things like that. That's uh, age old uh, kinds of things. The Fed. Um, entered to make sure there wasn't um, serious instability uh, dislocations that that moved in the direction that we saw in the 2007 to 2009 time period mm -hmm. the making sure that the, that the payment systems remains functional is very important um, the uh, the the magnitude of the different types of involvement is going to get some scrutiny. Um, the the bond buying uh, activities by the Fed, that is buying corporate bonds, it will be seen by some parties as picking winners over losers. Mm -hmm. um, that's going to get some scrutiny. Um, the question of how do you actually unwind this expansion, given that in the past attempts to reduce the uh, the uh, Fed's portfolio after the 2007 to 2009 time period uh, caused some illiquidity issues. And then the general issue of um, how risk gets priced where there are interventions in market functions that that distort risk return uh, relationships is I think also something that's going to get uh, discussed over time. Um, and uh, you could characterize it as though the Fed has added to their, uh, to their um, list of responsibilities, uh, which uh, by law are uh, uh, minimizing unemployment uh, and uh, I'm sorry, yeah, minimizing unemployment and uh, uh, holding inflation down. Now they're they're acting on financial stability and uh, some other things. So I think there there'll be public debate about uh, those things. Okay. Um, but as I said, any any broad based policy like that has uh, places you can you can uh, criticize it. Well, I, you know, I think the speed at which it happened, I think that was part of, if it's an overreaction, it might not have seemed like that on that day. So Yeah, that's absolutely <laughs> true. Yeah, no, no, uh, no one will question 
the fact that, that frankly, both the legislative process and the, the central banking process acted with, uh, with great uh, speed and impressively. It was uh, that, you know, in, a, in an era of pretty much no cooperation, they've, they got something done that was pretty important. Um, yeah. So now the PP program, PPP program is basically ended for this round. So what do you think is next for the unemployment rate? Well, um, to go back to the uh, unemployment insurance claims discussion last week, uh, and that comes out every Thursday morning at 8.30. Last week, the, uh, I, I'm sorry, the last two weeks, it's been at about a million and a half new claims filed. As I pointed out earlier, prior to the COVID, the, the highest week ever had been about 700,000, a little less than 700,000. So we're more than double that still. That suggests that there's still stress, significant stress uh, in, the, uh, in the employment market. So while we went down from 13.3 to 11.1 um, in the most recent month in terms of the unemployment rate, it's the unemployment insurance claims suggests from here it might be gradual the pace at which it declines our forecast uh for the end of year unemployment rate is about 9.3 really so that's only about two full percentage points lower than we are now do you consider especially in this latest cycle that we've what we've experienced do you consider u6 employment chart more important than U3? Um, it just it, it describes a different thing. I don't know that one's more important than the other. They, they describe different issues and give you a different sense of the dynamics of what's going on uh, in, in the employment category. One of the things that I watch is the, the number of people who are uh, working part-time for economic reasons, right? because that suggests they're, they would like to be working more, but they, they can't. Um, and those numbers are still very high um, and not surprising with an unemployment insurance, I'm sorry, unemployment rate of 11.1%. Uh, not surprising that'd be a lot of people working part-time that would rather work full-time. That, that, both that, the U6, most of the, the various uh, components, the uh, employment to population ratio, the workforce participation rate, all of those things, we try to uh, aggregate, uh, at least in our thinking, to give us a sense of momentum and also uh, of income curtailment. Um, and <clears throat> the, you know, we're in the mortgage industry, so if someone has a mortgage and their income is curtailed, it's back to what you were asking about earlier. What do we see in the delinquency uh, in the delinquency world? So that's typically what we're watching. For example, right at the moment, the stress uh, in the in the uh, housing business is on the uh, rental side of the equation because the 
probability of someone being an hourly wage worker uh, is higher that they would also be a renter. And if they are a salaried worker, they would have a higher probability of being a homeowner. Okay. And so what the bulk of the job loss initially was in the hourly wage worker category. So that's that we've been watching the, there's some data out there, the national multi-housing council, for example, puts out some data on what share of rents in some 11 million rental properties are being paid on time. The concern is that when the $600 a week unemployment insurance runs out on the 31st of July, they may make their August rental payment, but maybe not September unless there's some additional stimulus. So that's kind of how we patch together the composition and momentum of employment with what's happening with income and how that might impact uh, sectoral components in the economy. Coronavirus round two. So we've had states roll back some openings. So you have restaurants that are now uh, reclosing. So I guess I wanted your thought on that. Is there going to be maybe a PPP round number two? Or do you think this uh, round, uh, coronavirus round two, will really increase the closure of a lot of businesses? Well, as I understand it, there has been a second round of the PPP, and not all of that has been subscribed. In other words, there's still some available for people, for businesses to take down. So with that being the case, it's, it's unlikely there would be a third round of that unless for those firms that had it, had, that took the PPP, they, they were uh, impacted a second time and somehow the Congress and White House could conclude they could control for that to uh, extend uh, additionally to those firms. The, the way I'm thinking about the virus is that we're not saying, some people are calling it a resurgence. I would not call it a resurgence. I would call it a geographic shift because uh, more of it has been simply that the virus moved to the south and west uh, from the northeast and the northwest to areas where there had not been a pickup and now there's been a pickup. In some instances, it is true that easing has generated a resurgence. So it's, it's actually a mix of the two, but the bigger thrust to my way of thinking has been the geographic shift. The reason I divide it that way uh, is um, because people are, they're using various um uh, visuals to try to characterize the path of the economy. So they'll say, is there going to be a V-shaped recovery? Is it going to be a W-shaped recovery? Is it going to be a, a Nike swoosh? Will it be an L? Will it be a square root? You know, you could probably, <laughs> they probably think of a few other ways of thinking about it. Um, and the, the W uh, that is, a hard decline, then a partial recovery, then a return decline before a fuller recovery is conditioned on a couple of things. One of them being this resurgence question of the virus. Uh, and, and yes, you're seeing the reversal 
of um, some easing criteria because there, when things were eased, there was a pickup in the incidence of the disease. So that would sort of align with the, with the W view. But it's, that's different than the fact that it, you hadn't seen much in Texas or Florida or Arizona, and all of a sudden now you are that's the first time you've seen that there. So if, if New York picks up again, if Seattle picks up again, that would be a, a resurgence or a second round, uh, which some people are drafting off what happened in the 1917, 1918 time period where there was a second round and actually the mortality rate, I believe, if I remember the history of that correctly, I think the mortality rate was actually greater the second, the second pass. Yeah, I think it was. So, yeah, so that's that's why the concern, I think. So would the would there be fiscal policy to address uh, small businesses again? Yeah, potentially, uh, potentially. For more information on hard money loans and upcoming events with the Norris Group, check out thenorrisgroup.com. For information on passive investing with trust deeds, visit tngtrustdeeds.com. 